Well, this morning we begin a new uh, sermon series, as you have heard already in the book of Galatians. Uh, one of the questions that comes up in new sermon series, and anytime a, a sermon series is uh, announced, uh, I always get someone who comes and says, so I bet you're hearing something, Jimmy, and you're, uh, you're ready to lay it on that person. Let them know they've got it in the wrong. And if you're feeling a little guilty throughout this series, uh, that's not what I have in mind. <laughs> I think Galatians for us, uh, like, uh, like the scriptures themselves in total, but Galatians in particular has, has a word for us in where we're at today uh, in a very particular way. We have a battle going on in our culture uh, that's been raging for some time over what the word freedom means. Um, we were wrestling, I actually read an article this last week that uh, was comparing the words liberty and freedom and how those words uh, have taken on different meanings within culture. There's also been for some time uh, conversations around the word inclusion or in, in being inclusive. Um, and so uh, these words are ones that are, that are charged and filled with all kinds of cultural definitions. Galatians does a good work of helping to draw us to a place for us to understand a Christian definition for them and how they might apply to the church. And so as we go into this new series and stuff, you're going to hear some of those words. Maybe this is a little bit of a warning here right now. You're going to hear some of these, these words and, and to know that we're going to let Paul speak for Paul. And we're going to let Galatians uh, speak here at this point. Uh, Fox News and CNN won't be defining the terms here for us. We're going to allow the Scripture to define the, the terms. But as you hear those words and as little flags and things you know, kind of boil up within you and you start going, I don't know if I can go with that, stay with us in this. Stay with Galatians. Let's see what, what God has to say to each one of us as we go into this series, as we go along here. All right, so I think most of us have heard the expression safety first, right? You've heard safety first. Has anyone ever been told safety first, right? You're about to do something like, hey, safety first. We know that driving schools are named safety first. There are uh, early uh, education uh, type programs might have a whole safety first category for it, or even baby products with the name safety first is a brand out there. Of course, there's the cautionary note that you might get in advance of something that you might do, uh, one that I've heard many a times for my own would-be reckless actions. Uh, it's, a, it's a deliberate way of organizing one's life. If you say safety first, uh, you're being deliberate about the way that you're going to pattern yourself that takes seriously uh, that the next things that you might do uh, might be problematic for you. And so from this idea, my family have created a game. We have this little game we play. Now, I say my family because I don't want to own it. It's mostly me. We call it safety second. When I see something in culture or anything around me that uh, does not scream of safety first, let's say you're on the freeway, someone's driving really crazy, I go, safety second. If you get in my car with me and you don't put your seatbelt on right away, I say, safety second. Or if maybe you're in a situation where uh, you find yourself making some decisions, uh, you haven't quite done something yet that would be problematic, but you're getting ready to, safety second. And so we play this game. We, we, I think you get the idea of how that works. Chronologically, of course, the difference between first and second isn't that big of a, of a leap. There's not that much distance between those two. If you look at the Olympics, the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal oftentimes is in track and field only seconds or inches. It's not a huge gap uh, between those things. However, the difference between safety first and safety second is a gigantic chasm. Our text this morning is going to raise for us what might actually be a bigger chasm. And that's the difference between the gospel and what we might call a different gospel or a second 
gospel, as we hear there in verse 6. So know what our text says about what this second gospel looks like. It says that uh, those who were in uh, Galatia were turning uh, to something that was akin to deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ. Uh, That there isn't merely about the message alone. That's actually speaking of mutiny. So turning to a second gospel is a mutiny from the original uh, gospel they had received. It's not actually the gospel, but rather a manufactured corruption of the original we hear in verse 7. More than an alternative message, it's an altogether different message. They're not the same thing. It's not the gospel plus a few extra things. It's a completely different message. It says that this second gospel in verses 8 and 9 is contrary to what had been initially proclaimed, but also it was contrary to what the people had received. And in verse 11, we learn that this second gospel, a category that Paul's going to use here, is of human origin, uh, to contrast that from the gospel that he personally had received in revelation from Jesus Christ. Of course, this idea of a second gospel isn't something that's just for the ancients. It doesn't just go back to the first century. We actually see uh, this in our own day, whether that's uh, Christian restoration movements like the LDS or Latter-day Saints, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, as well as in the words and ministries of a number of popular uh, preachers and ministers that we might see on television or hear over the radio. Perhaps even at some level, we see the rise of second gospels in our own our own hearts. There's a national discipleship movement uh, that's called the Bonhoeffer Project. I don't know if you've heard of this before, uh, but it identifies what it calls six gospels prominently taught in the church today. And the author and co-founder of the project, Bill Hole, he notes that these different gospels present a significant challenge to the church in our own time when he writes, a different gospel leads to a different Christ, a different church, a different Christian, and a different culture. And he'll go on to say, each creates a different kind of disciple. The writer of our text this morning would agree with this problem, agree that this is a problem, and so strikes a tone of utmost seriousness when it comes to getting the gospel right. How do we know that it's serious? Well, let me tell you a family story here. I'm going to let you into a family secret that I was led into. This happened, I think, before I was even born. Uh, from my family of origin, my aunt uh, hosted Thanksgiving one year, and she served enchiladas. But she didn't tell anybody she was going to do that. So everybody showed up expecting to get turkey, mashed potatoes, and kind of the classic, uh, you know, Norman Rockwell kind of Thanksgiving picture, and they showed up, and she brought out enchiladas. People were very disappointed and angry. They didn't want to go back. Some people even left saying they didn't get Thanksgiving. Galatians is a little different than Paul's other writings here, and you'll see why this makes sense as Thanksgiving makes sense in a moment. In Colossians, you'll remember after he does his salutation, he offers words of thanksgiving. He does the same in Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you. He even does that in Romans. But in Galatians, no thanksgiving. There's no thanksgiving. I was trying to figure out a way to make you remember that, and I thought the, uh, I thought the enchilada thing would help you do that. There's no enchiladas in Galatians. I see we're doing call and response now. (laughs) In Galatians here, at this moment, what what happens is you can feel a sense of urgency there by what's not there. The readers and the hearers in that first century, as they hear this, they would hear the salutation and they'd be expecting to hear some sort of words of thanksgiving. And Paul goes right into this whole 
ordeal of what's wrong here. But it's not just by what's not said, it's also by what is said that we can see the, the urgency here. In verse 6, the apostle is astonished, is the word there. If you go to some other translations, uh, Peterson in the message uh, will use these words. He says, I can't believe. Uh, the old King James Version would say, I marvel. Uh, but each one is getting at that idea that here is a surprised apostle who's essentially saying, what is happening here? How could you abandon that original gospel. And this whole turning away from the gospel is a serious matter, which comes into full view as we read on in our text in verses 8 and 9, curses to the one who would bring another gospel. Even if you read further into Galatians in chapter 5, Paul will joke about uh, those who are calling for this other gospel to even self-mutilate themselves. He wished they would do that. I love what Audrey West observes here when she says, with a mouth or pen like that, it is easy to accept that the apostle to the Gentiles really was, as he says, a violent persecutor of the church before he met the risen Christ. Paul is fired up. Paul is fired up, and it's well-placed. It looks towards agitators who are confusing the people of God with a perversion of the gospel. To this lot, Paul says, literally, anathema. He calls down divine curses on them, And that's not anywhere that you would want to be. That's not anywhere where we would want to live. That's not what we'd want to have happen to us. We today are not to take second gospels lightly. We know in life we can oftentimes get things wrong. That's the danger and the challenge that we experience even here in the church is we oftentimes, even when we try to do things well, we still sometimes get it wrong and we mess it up. When I was in elementary school, I was waiting outside the school grounds. Uh, we had to wait for a bell to ring in order for us to come on a campus. So I'd gotten there a little bit early, as a number of students usually do, and it was going to be a few minutes later. The bell would ring and we'd go on campus. But before that happened, uh, a man came up with his daughter, and she kind of pointed at the crowd, and he locked eyes on me, and he came walking at me in, in something that can only be described as aggressive manner. He came right up into my face. He grabbed me by my clothes in a way that he was not going to let go. He proceeded to tell me that if I had ever threatened his child or messed with his kid again, he would break my, and he insert your expletive, neck. Yeah, right. I'm an elementary kid. I'm totally scared. Scared for what's going on right now, but also scared because I don't know who he is or who his daughter is. I have no idea who this person is. I don't even know what he's talking about. Well, it turns out that his daughter was pointing to someone who was standing behind me. (laughs) It ruined my day. We can get it wrong even when we're trying to get it right. We can get it wrong even when we're trying to get it right. Second Gospels get it wrong. And when they do, there's a very real toll. In our tradition, we uh, hold within our constitution a a series of confessions that tell the story about how the church over the ages have gotten it wrong and have attempted to profess and make statements to get it right. In Nazi Germany, a nationalist church touting its own second gospel emerged during World War II that justified a Fuhrer uh, who was evil and who espoused and enacted that evil on the human family. The Theological Declaration of Barman shines a light on the perversion of the gospel, redirecting readers to the real Lord, the real Fuhrer, and the gospel. 
In apartheid South Africa, a second gospel emerged that preached exclusion. It preached indifference and oppression. And it sought to justify a racist and unjust ideology. The Belhar Confession takes aim at that perversion of the gospel and reminds readers who, who belongs and how they belong in regards to the church, affirming once more the message of the gospel. And to the Galatian Christians, the second gospel that's being preached here is one that's confusing God's plan, a message that they had received originally. So what is that plan? The second gospel is bad. What is God's plan? What does God have in mind for people and for the people of God? Well, look what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. He encapsulates that in just a small little section here. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Two pieces there that are significant. There's a number of significant pieces, but two to draw out here. One is this, God our Father. It's not the first time that this reference shows up in Galatians. We're only three verses in, and it's already shown up twice. Uh, in that, that portion there. Paul's tipping us toward familial language, family language, language of one who belongs, but even more so the type of language that you would expect to hear from a Jewish person in reference to their covenant God. Yet Paul's not writing to a Jewish audience. And so we have a little clue here of what the original gospel has in mind, that to the diverse audience that had been stirred up and was strained towards the second gospel, Paul right now is going to tell them and say to them that what they have already heard remains true. That they have claimed something that God has done before they even claimed it. That is, God has claimed them. That they belong. That they're in God's family. Who they are. How that happened. Who they belong to. That they're God's own beloved. That they belong to God. That they are the people of God. And that they can rightly call on God as their father. Just as their Jewish counterparts do. And this is made possible because of the second thing that's found in that little encapsulation of the gospel. Because of the one who gave himself. God's plan and the self-giving of the Lord Jesus Christ brings transformation. Our lives are, are rescued of, from sin. We're resuscitated from the way of death. We're renewed to go on to live uncommon lives. And not because of actions that we have taken, but because of what God has made possible in the giving of God's self. So powerful is God's rescue and his claim on the lives of people that this early Christian writer, this one who is now called an apostle, who identified himself as zealous in his ancestral traditions, as you see in verse 14, will be part of telling this new story of what God is up to in verse 15. It's a more inclusive story. It's a one that extends and expands who belongs but it's also a life in which, talk about transformation, the one who has been served by Christ now calls himself a servant of Christ in verse 10. We echo in our own day, in our own age, in our own lives, this same profession when we say Jesus Christ is Lord. When we make that statement, when we make that profession, or at least that's what that claim entails and should entail for our lives. So as we close this morning, which is kind of interesting to say on the first day of a series that we're concluding, because this goes on and on throughout this series, I think Mark Twain helps give us a little perspective here. 
You know the quote, get your facts first, and then you can distort them as you please. Instead, we're to get our facts first and not distort them at all. This morning, as we enter uh, into this series, I want to pose a question to us as a church, as a group who comes together um, in cyberspace, but also in literally in this room, to be asking a question as we go through uh, this entire series, what gospel are we giving witness to? Several red flags that I know in my own heart uh, that I have to attend to, and I imagine that they're ones that we hold as well uh, in our own congregation going forward that will be helpful for us to attend to as we answer that same question through this series. First one is this, are we putting limits on who's invited? Have we put limits on that? Anytime I start putting limits on the gospel and who, who is that's available for, I find myself running into dangerous territory. There might be good reason in my mind and justification for why I have created those limits, but when it comes to giving witness to the gospel, to the world, when we start putting limits, we start running afoul with what the gospel is actually proclaiming. Second thing is this, is the message serving my wants but not my needs? Is the gospel message that I've come to uh, own for myself, is it serving just my wants but not my needs? Here's what I mean by that. If it's going to place me in a place of security and safety, is it going to benefit me and bless me? But it doesn't actually address the human deficiencies, the parts of my soul uh, that are in need of restoration and renewal, the places where grace needs to invade my sin. If it doesn't do that, it's a powerless gospel. The original gospel frees and rescues us from the greatest places of depravity in our lives. And so we look for the places of my great need. The gospel speaks to those places. And the last one is this. Is Jesus a central figure in the gospel? Jesus isn't a central figure in the gospel that we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming a second gospel. Because the good news message involves Christ. It's Christocentric. Jesus' name, literally, God's salvation. And so if we have a gospel that proclaims salvation that proclaims transformation and renewal, redemption, it's going to include God's salvation in that gospel. Is Jesus a central figure in that gospel? So are we putting limits? Is Jesus at the center? Does the message serve my actual needs? When we answer that question, when it comes down to the end of this series, and we recognize or maybe even realize that the gospel that we preach lines up in these different places, we'll have come to a place where we've made the gospel first. May it be so for us today. 